Hello, everyone, and welcome to the short horror story feature on the Author Podcast Show. I'm your host, Lauren Eason, and we'll be enjoying these frightening stories every Friday through Halloween. So, sit back, relax, and try not to run. Today's short horror story feature comes from Samuel Marshall and their title called One Missed Letter. Samuel has an Instagram and a website called Scribbles on the Bedroom Wall at wordpress.com. I'll go ahead and post those links in the bio for and description of this episode so you can find their works for yourself. So let's go ahead and dive into Mr. Marshall's short horror tale. One Missed Letter Edward Anderson had been delivering mail to the same houses almost every day for 20 years when the events at House 55 started. The pavements, cracked and crumbling with age, knew the weight of Edward's tread and were as familiar to him as the streets of his own suburb five miles away. Yet, despite all the walking, Edward was not a fit man. Overweight with a dermatologist's nightmare of moles up and down both his thick legs, he was the type of man you could hear coming before you saw him thanks to his heavy breathing. His thick handlebar mustache and head of fading brown hair had earned him the affectionate nickname of Walrus from the neighborhood kids. Edward was so used to delivering letters that he thought nothing of walking up the path of House 55 on Melbourne Street and shoving that what looked like an eviction notice through the front door. He had the letter pressed against the letterbox gray metal flap when he noticed a hand appear on the other side. The hand, brown and thin, with a light pink sleeve, looked like it belonged to that of a young girl, except upon closer inspection, Edward saw that hand seemed to be floating in mid-air, as if detached from his body. His heart raced, and he knew that if he had his long-overdue heart attack there and then, nobody would find him until long after they had finished their weekly food shopping. He barely had time to absorb his this unnerving thought when he had, when the hand lurched through the letterbox and shoved the letter in Eddie's sweaty palm. The letter was in a cream-colored envelope and had his name scrawled across it in long, flowing ink, Edward Anderson. And f- the fact the person had written the letter knew his last name scared him more than the disembodied hand, and he quickly shoved the letter in his back pocket. He finished his route and returned to the bright red post van at the end of the street for a sandwich, cheese and onion. What his wife Harriet called the woman repeller. He was halfway down his second helping when he remembered the letter. He dropped a sandwich on the empty seat beside him and fished out the now crumpled envelope. The sight of his name still unnerved him and he opened the letter with surprising tenderness. Inside was a single folded sheet of paper. He plucked it out and unfolded it on his lap. Written across the middle of the page in the same delicate handwriting that was on the envelope was a single sentence. It's your fault. He turned the letter over, expecting to find some kind of explanation, but only found his own greasy thumbprint looking back at him. He played the sentence over in his head. It's your fault. The leaky shed was his fault. The broken window at the drunken monkey was his fault, along with two other drunkards. Yet, as far as Edward knew, he, hadn't res- he wasn't responsible for anything at House 55. 
He folded the letter and returned it to his back pocket, playing the message over in his mind. As he drove past the mystery house on the way back to the depot, he slowed down and thought about the disembodied hand. Something was his fault, yet nothing came to mind. He returned home and tried to smile when Harriet, tall with doe eyes and dirty blonde hair, kissed him. You've eaten your sandwiches then, she said with a smile. Only way I can stay faithful. He kissed her again, told her his back was hurting, and went to bed early, and led her never far from the back of his, his mind. The last thing he thought of as his head sunk into the pillow was all the things that were his fault in the world, and wept himself to sleep. Edward had all but forgotten about the letter when he returned to Melbourne Street the next day. Yet, despite this, the street now seemed different. He felt as if everyone was watching him through their living room windows, and he was grateful that the COVID-19 pandemic had given him an excuse to cover his face with a mask. He rushed down the street more than once, posting a letter to the wrong house, then froze when he got to House 55. It looked exactly the same as the day before, yet he felt as if a dark overcast had tinted its windows. He thumbed the wad of envelopes in his hand, a collection of overdue utility bills, and contemplated shoving them back in his bag and running. It was the glass eye of the Wi-Fi security camera above the front door that stopped him. They would know he ran, Edward thought. Whoever it was would know. There was a final pause as Edward checked the house windows for any curtain twitchers. He bolted up to the front door, forced the letters through the letterbox, and sprinted to the bottom of the front garden path. He had almost gotten away when he saw movement in the upstairs window. Before the, behind the faded red of the bedroom curtain, someone was watching him. Edward could make out the faint outline of a woman's messy bun and caught a glimpse of a threadbare robe. The woman dragged a bony finger down the glass, a dirty smudge being left in its wake, then pointed at Edward. He jolted backward as if her finger has managed to reach him. He looked down at his stomach, expecting to see blood. Nothing, yet he could feel his heart race. For the second time that week, he wondered if a heart attack was just around the corner. Edward scurried to the end of the road and dropped to his haunches, gasping for air. His heart was still racing when he heard a voice behind him. "'Morning, Mr. Walrus. Busy morning.' "'Like you wouldn't believe, Mr. Tusk.' He replied to Bobby Hansen, a short, buck-toothed kid who was rarely seen without his yellow bike. Want some help? Nah, to get fired. Thanks anyway, Bobby. Edward was about to walk off when a thought came to mind. Um, Mr. Tusk, what would you tell me about House 55? The Hotters? Nothing, really. Quiet. Don't see the mum about much these days. I used to go to school with the daughter until she dropped out. So, nothing weird about them? Not really, unless you count being the only family on the estate that doesn't put Christmas lights each year. Why? Something happened? No, not really. Maybe nothing. Just keep an eye out. I might let you help me someday if you do. Bobby nodded furiously, excited at the idea of finally someday being able to help Mr. Walrus with this route. He jumped back on his bike and raced down to House 55. It was there where he stood like a sentry until Edward shouted that he could leave as he drove past in his van. Will do, Mr. W. Don't forget our deal. Edward waved, knowing he would never follow through on it, and took a moment to glance back at 55. His stomach still stung from the curse. 
he was convinced the house's hermetic resident had cast upon him. He dumped the last of the letters in his van and left without finishing his route. Harriet. Yes? How about we go on holiday this weekend? Just down to the beach. I'm sure we can rent a caravan for cheap. Edward was sitting in the living room, applying a heat pack to his aching back as his wife painted a birdhouse in the kitchen. The house was filled with the burning smell of gloss, and Edward found himself gazing out of the front window at a blue birdhouse hanging from the rosebush. Sounds nice. We haven't been to the seaside since... Hmm. George's going-away party for university five years ago. Last family outing before she moved on to bigger and better things. Harriet stood in the doorway as they reminisced about the little girl who had gone on to start her own business in Nottingham. Ever since George's departure, the couple had become adept at making plans they knew they would never follow through on. Yet it gave them a brief glimmer of hope all the same. Harriet was standing on the back doorstep when she started to shout, Ed! Ed! There's someone at the top of the garden! Edward bounced out of his seat, forgetting his back pain, and raced to the garden patio. Harriet, usually the strongest of the two, was stammering and kept pointing to the thicket of trees which ran along the back fence. There was someone there, dressed in pink like a nightgown. That can't have been. The fence is eight feet high. Plus, I added all those bolts to the back gate just before Christmas, remember? Edward Anderson. I know what I saw. Believe me or not, there is someone at the top of the garden, Harriet snapped. She folded her arms and looked ready to kill as he silently pleaded with her. Okay, I'll check. He squeezed her arm and then grabbed a heavy wooden shovel from the shed. It was a long walk to the top of the garden, made longer by Edward's reluctance to go up there. It wasn't that he didn't believe Harriet, it was that he believed her more than he was willing to let on. He got to the top of the garden and could have burst into tears of joy when he saw all five padlocks still hanging locked from the back gate. He studied each one, um, turning it over in his hands and gave them a final tug to make sure nothing had worked them loose. He was ready to return to Harriet to tell her her apparition was probably a bird or a neighbor's cat when he saw a small footprint like that of a slipper beneath a dying oak tree. The back of the indent was crushed as if whoever had made it fled in a hurry. Edward rubbed the dirt from the footprint between his fingers, willing its owner to suddenly appear in front of him. He inspected the thicket of trees again and found a hole, no bigger than a cereal box, hidden behind a patch of nettles in the furthest corner of the fence. Still, his mind wanted to believe it was a cat that had gotten through the hole, one carrying a pink sock or a faded red blanket, Edward looked for more footprints but found none. The ground was clear except for that lone sign that somebody, something, had been in his garden watching his wife. Edward fetched a piece of old perspex plastic from the greenhouse and used it to block up the hole. That night, he didn't sleep. Instead, he chose to sit in front of an old rocking chair in front of the bedroom window and watched the garden like an aging sentry. Foxes and cats went back and forth, but nobody showed up. House 55. It was the first thought which entered Edward's mind as he returned to work and picked up that day's delivery. He rushed through the estate and kept his eyes peeled for Bobby Hansen. Sure enough, Bobby was waiting for Mr. Walrus at the corner of Melbourne Street. 
Bobby, today's your lucky day, he roared, sweat running down his back, and his hand was letter. You're going to let me? I'm going to let you. You see this here? It's for House 55. I want you to post it for me, then run right back. Can you do that? Of course. Bobby snatched the letter from Edward's hand and raced to the door of House 55. Edward watched from across the street, never taking his eyes off the upstairs window. No movement, yet Edward still had a feeling that someone was watching him. Bobby returned to Edward, and the two scurried back to his van. Seen anything weird? Just this. In Bobby's hand was another envelope. This one looked exactly the same as before, except the name written across the front of it was in red ink. Edward refused to take it, letting Bobby study it as if it was a rare creature. Where did it come from, Bobby? The door. It was poking out. So why'd you take it? It could be for someone else. But it isn't, Mr. Walrus. It's got your name on it. And it seemed to jump out at me when I approached, as if someone had pushed it through the other side. Edward felt as if he was going to throw up. The street started spinning, and he would have collapsed to the concrete if it hadn't been for Bobby catching him just in time. Edward slammed a meaty paw on the hood of his van and started to dry heave into the gutter. What does the letter say, Bobby? I am telling you to open it. What does it say? He heaved again as he waited for the nervous child to open the letter and then asked him to read it out loud. It says... What? As if I don't know already know. What is it? Edward was getting angry with the boy, even though it wasn't his fault. Bobby took a deep breath, then almost burst into tears. It... it... it says you're going to die. Bobby held the letter out to Edward, and he finally lost his stomach. Edward didn't know how he got home. He couldn't remember climbing into bed. He could only remember the quiver and Bobby's voice as he read the contents of the letter out loud in the middle of the street. Now, he decided it was the time he should go to somebody. He would tell them exactly what was happening and ask for a change of route. But nothing had happened. Nothing logical, anyway. He had been given two scraps of paper and a person had pointed at him. He imagined sitting in the HR office explaining this and felt like laughing. No one would take him seriously. And besides, going to HR might open another can of worms. He had spent years hiding from the management. He rolled out of bed, being careful not to wake Harriet, and fished the letters out of his trouser pocket. He went to the window and studied them in the moonlight. Looking at them like that, he could conclude two things. A. They were both written by the same person. And B. They were definitely not written by a child, as he had hoped. He was still looking at them when Harriet, dressed in a pink nightgown, woke up to go to the bathroom. Back hurting, Ed? Nah, couldn't sleep. I might go do a hot drink in a minute. See if that works. Let me know if it does, and might I try it myself. And I might try it myself. Harriet was almost out the door when she noticed the letters in Edward's hand. Who are they from? Junk mail, he said, lying without thinking. I found them in my trousers. And you're reading them. I thought you'd get sick of delivering the stuff. I don't know, he said, running his thumb across the ink. Some of it can be pretty interesting. Must be to have you reading in the dark at two in the morning. Edward raised his eyebrows and waited for Harriet to leave the room. The moment he could hear the tap running across the hall, he screwed the letters up and threw them out of the upstairs window. Once again, trying to convince himself that they meant nothing. 
The morning after Edward got changed for work, rubbed some muscle cream onto his, into his back and drove the two miles to Wolverhampton Post and parcel delivery service at the far end of the city. He had barely walked through the door of the sorting office when Linda, the receptionist, rushed over to him and told him that Mr. Black wanted to speak to him. Michael Black was Edward's boss, despite being 10 years younger than him. Normally, Edward would have begrudged such a man if it were for his backstory. Five years in the police force, he left the force to look after his dying mother, opened a post office at the end of the first street so he could keep checking on her during his lunch break, and eventually made his way up to become the local postmaster. Michael was the prodigal son, and with his slick black hair and smooth chin, he resembled the man Edward's daughter had run off with. Michael licked his lips, turned off the fan on his desk, then got to the point when he saw Edward standing nervously in the doorway. Edward, we have been handed footage of you dumping 18 bags of letters into the fire pit on Bucknell Industrial Park. All those factories have cameras. Michael hit play on the laptop in front of him and turned it around to face Edward. The video showed a grainy, low-color picture of a man, clearly Edward, sneaking through the gap in the factory's iron railings and emptying a leather satchel into the furnace. Seconds later, Edward was seen leaving and returning to his van. Michael hit stop and turned back to Edward. Edward, <sighs> we think it's time you retire. Avoid the scandal. We delete the footage. Seem fair? Hmm. Seems fair, Edward said, knowing it would have been pointless to argue the hard evidence presented in front of him. Good. I knew you wouldn't be a problem. Michael shut his laptop, took a swig of tea from the cup on his desk, then pulled a sheaf of paperwork from his top drawer. Sign this. I've already marked it up. Edward took it without saying anything and started signing. He had been in the job for 20 years, yet now he was leaving. He couldn't understand why he had stayed there for so long. He had wanted stability, yet stability had brought with it a repetitive lifestyle. The same thing every day that was until the happenings at House 55. Edward finished signing the paper, put the pen down, and looked up at Michael, who had been watching him from across the table. Can I say something, Michael? You can say whatever you like as long as you don't ask for your job back. I won't. There's a kid on the estate, Bobby Hansen. I guess he's a friend. Tell the next guy to look out for him. He's going to need a kid like Bobby if he wants to know which houses have dogs that'll bite you. Or owners, which will bite you. Sure, Bobby Hansen just like Robert Hansen, the serial killer. Guess he has parents with a sense of humor. I wouldn't know about that. Just look out for him. We'll try. Michael walked Edward out of the building's main door, and just like that, Edward's career was over. He went home and told Harriet that he had decided to retire during Christmas. She believed him, if only because the truth would have broken her heart. On the first day of his retirement, Henriette... Uh, um, Harriet brought Edward a round of cheese on toast for lunch and smiled. No cheese and onion sandwich, dear. Nope. We got no one to keep you from now. She kissed him firmly on, on the lips, the spark never fading after all their years together, and for a moment Edward thought, wondered why he had never considered retirement before. Edward never saw Bobby Hansen again, yet in his forced retirement he was all he could think about. He loved his daughter, but empty nest syndrome had hit the Anderson household hard, and he found himself wishing he had someone to cook dinner for now that he wasn't so busy. 
Harriet and Edward were watching Les Miserables on the television when he turned to her and started thinking about the past. Did I ever tell you about House 55? No. Oh, I thought I had. I was delivering a letter there about two months ago, and I swear a floating hand posted me a letter. A floating hand? So, your retirement is because you were drinking on the job, Harriet said, still unconvinced about his reason for suddenly retiring. I'm serious. I guess my nerves are shot after spending ten years worrying I'll get bitten by someone's pampered pooch. At least you've still got all your fingers. Edward held his hands up, fingers spread, and smiled. The morning after, he donned his coat, made his way to Melbourne Street for one last look at House 55. In the months since his departure, a lot had changed. The house was now boarded up with metal shutters over the windows and door, and no entry signs pasted across the front. Edward walked up the path and imagined he was pushing a letter through the front door. He half expected a hand to reach out and grab him, but nothing did. The events which had taken place there seemed to have been nothing more than two isolated incidents, childish pranks aimed at scaring him. Edward had driven halfway home listening to the classic rock station on the radio when the station switched to the news. Local reports are coming in that a fire has broken out at the house on Melbourne Street in the town of Willenhall. The fire brigade are at the scene and are telling people to stay away whilst they tackle the blaze. Edward snapped the radio off and did a sharp U-turn in the middle of the street. He raced back to Melbourne Street where he saw flames looking at the walls of House 55. He was about to cross the cordon when a police officer in a raincoat pushed over and stopped him. Excuse me, sir, you can't pass here. But I need to. Why? Edward didn't know how to respond and froze in the middle of the street as the house disappeared into a symphony of fire and smoke. The burning at House 55 was the big local news for a week afterward. The fire brigade had spent three days trying to find any survivors after the house had collapsed in on itself. Although it had been boarded up at the time of the arson, the increase in homelessness in the area might have meant somebody had broken in to keep warm for the night. The town had held its breath as each brick was removed to reveal the layers beneath. Edward had refused to tell Harriet that he had been at the site of the fire. He knew she would ask a thousand questions to which he didn't have the answer. All he could do was remain silent and wait for the news to blow over. The only consolation was that nobody had been in the building, although the back panel had been ripped off some time before, a sign that somebody had been living there. He was standing in the middle of the snack food aisle in Betty B Better, mm, Better Buy, picking out a share, of, a share bag of crisps for him and Harriet when a scarecrow of a woman in a pink robe lunged at him with a knife. One minute he was deciding between salt and vinegar or jalapeno spice, the next he was lying on the floor in the puddle of his own blood. A young girl in a light blue uniform started performing first aid whilst an angry-looking teenager in a tracksuit tackled Edward's assailant to the floor. The last thing Edward saw before he passed out was a paramedic placing an oxygen mask over his face and then the bright lights of an ambulance. Edward woke up in the hospital three days later and found Michael Black sitting in the metal chair beside his hospital bed heart monitor beat peacefully to his left, and, it w and if it wasn't for the decor, he would have thought he was at home. Morning. About time you woke up, Michael said with the mock sincerity. They put me under? Had to. You've got a lot of mass, and you had to have a lot of stitches. Edward looked under the covers at his protruding belly and saw long rows of stitches running across his abdomen. 
He could remember the stabbing, but his memory had decided to block out the slashing frenzy which had followed the initial attack. He ran his fingers along his side and winced when his nails cut caught a loose piece of skin. I spent my life avoiding dogs and cars pulling out of their driveways, only to get nearly killed buying a bag of crisps. How it goes. Michael left the room and returned with two plastic cups of coffee. He, peace, he carefully placed the drink in Edward's hand and encouraged him to take a sip. Just like back in the office, Edward commented and took a swig of the scalding liquid. He started to cough and Michael patted him on the back. Maybe too much too soon. There was a moment of silence as the two nursed their drinks and silently enjoyed each other's company. There was one question, however, that Edward wanted an answer to. Who was she? The woman? Someone on your route who you had been burning the mail for for several years. Her sister had been sending her money to help her keep the house whilst she recovered from chemotherapy. A lot of the checks never arrived. He paused, then fixed Edward with an icy stare. She was being evicted because of you. How did she know it was me? Proof of postage. Her sister was sending her a photo of the receipt. Never occurred to her to, use, to just use a bank transfer. They had known you so long that they refused to believe you could be stealing from them. I wasn't stealing. Not money. But the post never arrived, did it? Edward fell silent and drained the last of his cup. What will happen to her? Do you know? Either she'll die in prison, die in the hospital ward, or die on her sister's city. But she ain't dying at home. Michael drained his coffee, said goodbye, and left, leaving Edward alone with the sound of his heart monitor. When he got home three weeks later, there was a single handwritten letter on his doorstep. He opened it, expecting another threat, but only finding George's handwriting instead. Dad, I heard about what happened. I'll fly back as soon as I can. You don't deserve it. Edward folded the letter and threw it in the fireplace. Old habits die hard. Maybe he did deserve it after all. I hope you enjoyed listening to that short horror story feature on the author podcast show. More horror will be heading your way every Friday through Halloween. For more information about the show, or if you'd like to contact me, please visit laureneason.com. Have a wonderful spooky season, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.